we've achieved some kind of a pseudo balance between the fact that we have now nearly dominant the B117 UK variant in this state, which is a very transmissible strain, balanced on the other side by a combination of people getting vaccinated, a fair number of people in our community who've already had COVID. And so there is some pre-existing immunity in the state. And so those two forces are working against each other and balancing out to sort of this kind of constant yeah. number. Two thirds of healthcare workers said COVID had a negative impact on their mental health and 50% are burned out and almost 25% are angry when they go to work. 30% of frontline healthcare workers are considering leaving healthcare and 25% of nurses that are bedside nurses are thinking about leaving the workforce entirely or going to a non-bedside job. And we're feeling that. We need to get more doctors to actually order vaccines so they have it in their freezers. Last week, the state health department finally allowed independent practitioners to order, and only 65 doctors did it. So the state health department should do a root cause analysis to figure out why only 65 ordered. We need some new strategies to just at least give us a chance to keep some of the momentum going. And we're going to get to herd immunity. The question is how quickly. And we can get there a lot faster if we can make some more inroads. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Vital Spark podcast. I'm your host, John Ford, and it is time for another COVID-19 roundtable. It probably won't surprise you at all that we're going to talk quite a bit about vaccines. As you heard at the top, we're also going to talk about ASU's latest predictive modeling results regarding the next four months. And we're going to paint a picture of how hospitals and healthcare professionals are trying to process and recover from a very stressful time. Plus, did you ever think a podcast focused on COVID would also talk about pizza boxes? In this episode, we will, in fact, check that box. As Josh said at the top of the program, we have reached a state of pseudo-balance. Arizona is still experiencing a moderate to substantial rate of new COVID cases from the much more transmissible B117 variant. The balance point comes from a combination of people who have already had COVID and those who are vaccinated. Now, there's no guarantee that balance will hold. What's required is finding ways to get more and more Arizonans vaccinated. As Will notes, we'll get to herd immunity, but the question is when and how. So let's get to it. It's time to talk about putting all the puzzle pieces together, taking pizza boxes apart, getting people off of fences, and getting shots into arms as of May 10, 2021. The best people in the world are joining us today. From Arizona State University, Dr. Joshua LaBera. Josh, how's it going? I'm feeling optimistic. Doing well. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. And from Valleywise Health, Dr. Kara Guerin. Kara, how are you? Doing well. Thank you. Feeling optimistic as well, which is uh, unusual for me. And the man who advocates tirelessly through this entire thing, Mr. Will Humble from the Arizona Public Health Association. Will, how's it going? Very nicely if that's the right way to use the conjugation. <laughs> I think it is. As an, English, as an English lit major, I think you got it right. Josh, do you want to start the ball rolling? It's important to know where we are by the numbers. What's going on? Right. So in terms of the general numbers, we are hovering pretty much daily now around 700-ish new cases a day, somewhere between 600 and 900. The number does not seem to be rising. The number does not seem to be falling. The hospitals, in my view, are not really changing. The 
the number of cases in the hospitals, the number of people in the ICU beds. There's certainly people there. We don't want to dismiss that, but they don't appear to be, in my view, changing very much over the past couple of weeks. They seem to be kind of hovering at a level. And I think that, to me, that represents we've achieved some kind of a pseudo balance between the fact that we have now nearly dominant the B117 UK variant in this state, which is a very transmissible strain, balanced on the other side by a combination of people getting vaccinated, a fair number of people in our community who've already had COVID. And so there is some pre-existing immunity in the state. And so those two forces are working against each other and balancing out to sort of this kind of constant yeah. number. It's like we're at equilibrium right now. Yeah. And we're waiting for that moment where we cross the threshold into approaching herd immunity when we'll start to see a decline in cases because of achievements with vaccination. But we're right. not there yet. We're, and your model shows that. There's an article in the Republic today that I think gives a lot of people who are kind of still nervous a little bit of comfort to know that while this isn't over, we're not going to have another December, January, February kind of event. Right. I mean, that's what the model shows is that the likelihood of a major surge is very low. Right. All right. So let's get into it. Let's talk about the model. What went into that new modeling exercise? What came out of it? And what should we take away from it? Right. Once again, we have an outstanding team of modelers. And what they did in their model is they took a couple of things into account. So they took into account people who had had one dose of vaccine for those vaccines that require two doses and what the expected immunity would be from that. And then people who have had two doses of vaccine or one dose of the J&J &J vaccine, which is a complete response. So they took that into account and what the expected immunity would be from that. They took into account that over the course of late April and May, they took it to an extreme. They said the UK variant would become 100%, which it really isn't at this point. But they did it because it would kind of give us a bookend to the model. It would sort of be an extreme version of a very high transmissible strain. And so they took that into account. They are assuming a certain level of unmasking that's occurred. So they're looking at the current level of people interacting a bit more openly now. They looked at what would happen and they did two scenarios. One scenario is basically continued vaccination at roughly 50,000 cases per day. And the other was they froze vaccination at April 28th. They basically said nobody else after April 28th gets vaccinated at all. So that's where we are right now. And then they looked at what would happen moving forward. And so what it showed was if you continue vaccinating, as Will already mentioned, the numbers start to really drift down. You really see fewer and fewer cases. I mean, it really gets pretty low. And that is extraordinarily encouraging. If you lock it down to just what got vaccinated by the end of April, it basically doesn't really go up. It just kind of hovers at a kind of constant rate, which is kind of what we're doing right now. It never really surges. And that takes it all the way out to August. That was encouraging. And they tried pretty hard, the modeling team, to see if they could find a surge. And they couldn't. They really couldn't find a surge. So it doesn't look like it's going to really rocket up at this point. Now, two things to keep in mind. One is never underestimate nature's ability to find an even more aggressive variant. That's always a possibility. Haven't seen it yet. No, no evidence that it's on the horizon, but I've been taught by many professors over my career, never underestimate nature. And then, of course, the model that they build is based on a current level of interaction. It doesn't necessarily account for suddenly everybody ripping off their masks and going to a baseball game 
sitting next to each other or going to a big rock concert or whatnot. There's always a possibility that there could be, we could find a super spreader event that could overcome what we're seeing right now. But if people pretty much continue behaving as they are now, the future is certainly going to stay at equilibrium or maybe get better. People have talked about the idea that Florida's spring break may have actually been one of those super spreader events. Might do, yeah. So the assumption that your team made at 50,000 shots a day, yeah, which was what was happening when they ran the model. And, right. But the problem is we're now down to closer to 35,000 or 30,000 a day. So we're not meeting that 50. But we got kids 12 to 15 probably going to be authorized to get the Pfizer shot this week. And so that adds a few hundred thousand kids to the potential people that could get vaccinated. That may help. I don't think it'll bring us up to 50,000 a day, though. I mean, just with the amount of people that are hesitant, there's no way you can even stay at 50,000 a day for particularly a long time. Well, one of the things I think would help us get back up a little bit or at least maintain some of the momentum that we had two weeks ago or three weeks ago is to get the pharmacies to drop the appointment requirement because then adults in their 20s and 30s would have an opportunity to be more spontaneous about getting the shot when they're in the drugstore for batteries or milk or beer or whatever. They can look at the back and see that there's no line and jump in and get their shot taken care of. Some have done that. CVS went to a no appointment needed. So I'd like to see some of the other pharmacies do that. I think that would help. The county health departments are putting up some good pop-up events that you can see. Pima County, too, especially, is really being creative. They have a thing at night, I think, Shot in the Dark, they're calling it. They have a thing in downtown Tucson near an iconic theater down there. I think it's on 4th Street near the university where you can get a vaccine at night and they make kind of a fun atmosphere out of it. So I think we need more creative kinds of things to make it spontaneous and fun. And we will hit a wall at some point, but we're not there yet. Josh, you brought it up two weeks ago when we did the podcast that if FDA would jump and do the analysis and get some of these vaccines approved, not just authorized, that might bring some people off of the fence. And Pfizer has now put in that application. Yeah. So if they move quickly, that may help us a little bit. Yeah, I didn't appreciate that they hadn't done that before. I had assumed that they had done that. But yeah, I heard that today, too. How long does that take? Now, knowing that they had not submitted it before makes me think that we might get it done faster than I thought. I thought that the FDA was just lingering on an existing application, but maybe that wasn't the case. There's an awful lot of data that Pfizer can point to, both in terms of safety and efficacy. I would be surprised if it took a really long time here because there are tens of millions of people who've received that vaccine by now. The number of adverse events has been watched like a hawk, and there have not been many. And you just cannot argue that this is not efficacious. All kinds of drugs have been approved that are nowhere near as efficacious as this is. So be really surprised if it took a long time. And we know how sensitive the surveillance system is with the Johnson & Johnson thing. It's a great system. Yeah. The only thing I could imagine someone hesitating about would be, have we watched people long enough right. to rule out long-term events? But there, there are really no good data anywhere to show that vaccines cause long-term problems. Despite all the noise that gets made in the media, there really aren't. 
So I'd be surprised if this doesn't get approved. And not only will it do what Will just said, which is to encourage those people who are a little bit on the fence to, to show up, but I think what you're going to start to see is various businesses and various institutions requiring their employees to get vaccinated, which they've been hesitant to do without having formal FDA approval. But once there's formal FDA approval, I think a lot of people will start to say, you know what, you want to come to work, go get vaccinated first. I want to back up a little bit. We talked about a sort of equilibrium that we're in right now, where we seem to be holding a, a, sort of the same number of cases. And subsequently, that would mean proportionally the same number of deaths. Kara, how does equilibrium feel? <laughs> does it feel like it's over? Because it sounds like it's over when you say equilibrium. Yeah, no, it's not over. Personally, I feel like I've seen more COVID recently, but that's my little microcosm. We see a lot of people who come in for other reasons and then end up having COVID. Our hospital screens every person that goes to the operating room or gets admitted. So we find a lot of people that didn't even know they had COVID or had minimal symptoms. I recently had a patient who came in and I had a long talk with her. And then at the end, she said, oh yeah, I lost my sense of taste and smell. She was had delayed her emergency care because she was so scared of the virus. Mm. So it was a very unusual and, and kind of almost sad because she had delayed her care. And then she was so worried about it. And then at the end said, Thing, something that I was like, oh, you have COVID. She did. I think it's good to be in equilibrium, but still there. And I think at least as a healthcare worker, the big concerns we had during most of the pandemic are gone. So the like personal fear and that I'm going to take this home to my family is for the most part gone. The healthcare workers who want to be vaccinated are vaccinated and the family members, as long as they're not under 16, who want to be vaccinated are vaccinated. The fear is gone, but almost the wreckage is still there. As far as some of that wreckage goes, talk about what's going on in terms of, I know we've touched on it a number of times, but let's revisit yeah. because it's different from week to week. What's going on with personnel, with workforce, with yes. administration? Yeah. So I think that they're still working through the backlog of things. There was a study recently that said that they think there's going to be a lot more diagnoses of cancers in the next two, three years because people have skipped their screening. And we're trying to catch up on the things that were considered elective surgeries and appointments. People are trying to figure out when you can go see your healthcare workers in person, when you still do video visits. And then two-thirds of healthcare workers said COVID had a negative impact on their mental health, and 50% are burned out, and almost 25% are angry when they go to work. So the fear is now turning into kind of a long-term chronic problem. And they found in a survey they did recently with The Guardian that the healthcare workers that are most affected are those um, kind of at the lower end of the income scale, minorities, and youngest. Just like everything else in COVID, it's hitting the people that are most at risk. So, and I mentioned before, 30% of frontline healthcare workers are considering leaving healthcare. And 25% of nurses that are bedside nurses are thinking about leaving the workforce entirely or going to a non-bedside job. And we're feeling that. I think that people are starting to make their moves now. People are retiring early and they're searching for other things. Maybe they're trying a different location, a different hospital, a different nursing home because we need nurses and they're already tired. So when we have a nursing shortage now and they've already been working so hard over the past year, they're just tired. In a state that's always had a healthcare workforce shortage, what now? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, a few things. I do think that there are, is some renewed energy. Medical school applications have gone up 18%. 
And anecdotally, I've heard that in nursing and other allied health professionals, which is good, but that takes time. There's other smaller things. I saw a bill somewhere, I don't know if it was in Arizona, that I think was a federal bill that wanted to allow more international nurses to come. That's brain drain, and that's not a long-term fix either. <laughs> I think long-term, we, it's so difficult to rethink the system, but it's a system problem. A lot of people have been happy with what employers have been doing to support healthcare workers. It has to be a system change about how you tackle things and how you keep healthcare workers engaged and are treated and anticipatory. The fact that there was not enough PPE for healthcare workers is the type of thing that'll crush your spirit and never make you want to come back. So far, Kara, nobody's talking about this concept of maybe a, a literally a surge of people who had delayed care seeking. We've talked about that anecdotally, but it seems like now that could actually be a true wave. We haven't really experienced that, but I think people are just busy. I think you still have some COVID problems, but people have basically gone back to doing everything normal. So we have lots of traumas, car accidents, and the same thing we had pre-pandemic kind of with an additional infectious disease portion of it. Yeah. You see a lot more cars on the road now. That's for sure. Yes. People are doing the stuff they normally do. We yeah. almost see more car accidents than we used to. We, people are just out and about. And a lot of them say they're out and about because they were cooped up for so long. And then, of course, surgeons are really busy. I mean, what... Very. When we say elective surgery, we're talking about removing cancers. We're not just talking about facelifts here. We're talking about things that got delayed because you couldn't bring people into the hospital in January, yeah. February. I think, as you said, John, with time, we are going to see, you know, we had made so much progress in cancer and heart disease. And I think that a lot of that is going to be reversed, but it takes time to see that. It takes a few years for that to happen. And then it takes a few years for us to kind of notice and get the statistics together. There have been reports now, people doing studies that suggest that the actual mortality from COVID-19 was much higher than the 500,000 that we initially quantified, almost approaching a million, just the U.S. Right, just the U.S. Yeah, we did that analysis in Arizona. We took total mortality. That doesn't lie. Total mortality is total mortality. And we compared the pandemic year to the 10 previous years. And while there's 17,000 persons that on death certificates that died from COVID are excess total mortality, all-cause mortality for the period of the pandemic is more like 25,000. And that's where COVID's not on the death certificate. But an example of that would be somebody who was at home during, say, January and had chest pain, but didn't call 911 because they were afraid that if they did, right. the ambulance came, it would look like MASH or something like that when they got to the hospital. So they didn't. And then later that turned out to be something that had they gone in, they could have been saved, but instead had some kind of critical event at home and died. But mm -hmm. that COVID didn't do it, but the fear of going to the hospital did it. During those peaks, people were petrified, especially at the beginning when we were still trying to figure everything out. Things were just very different in terms of the medical care everyone received. And people, oh yeah, you're right, Well, people were just so scared. Yeah, my mom had a stroke during the big wave. And oh, uh, so well, she's okay now. She had AFib, and, but she's oh. walking again and she's doing fine. She's actually, you can't even tell. But the reason I'm telling the story is because my dad, he brought her in and he thought it was going to be like TV shows. 
when he got there. I thought it was going to look like a war zone, but it was really organized, and they just brought her back. Now, no one could visit her. She was all on her own in terms of no one could go to her room and stuff, but that's just an example. People thought if they go to the hospital, it was going to be, you know, like these dramatic shows, (laughs) like Grey's Anatomy on New Year's Day or something, (laughs) you know? Right. Yeah, the episode where the boat crashes into the airplane and hits the building at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, that kind of stuff. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen that episode. Josh, to be clear, the modeling team did what it did in order to project out worst case scenario, whether or not we would have another major surge of cases. Yeah. What they did is in no way an invitation for people to say, oh, they already ran a model that said if nobody else gets a shot, it'll be fine. I mean, we're very hesitant to even talk about it a little bit because of that interpretation. That is not what they did. And and that's why I was trying to remind the notion that it models assuming that people continue behaving as they are now, which is still wearing masks theoretically in big public spaces and all that stuff. I mean, I know that's not always happening, but it was based on numbers related to that. So if all of a sudden people start going to concerts and all those other things, who knows what they could accomplish in terms of getting the numbers to go up again. There are a sizable number of people now who are resistant to the virus, and that does help us. Before, in the emergency department, it was in terms of just talking with patients and staff who had COVID and who, you know, kind of the the anxiety. And now it's much more patients will come in and say, oh, yeah, but I got vaccinated. And, you know, yeah, I had a a very sweet 88-year-old patient whose grandson cared for her, and they were both so proud. I got vaccinated. And for Valentine's Day, the grandson took the grandmother for a date to get her vaccination. The conversation I'm hearing more nowadays is companies or, or small businesses saying everybody in the business has gotten vaccinated except X, Y, and Z or X and Y, or, and they're just not going to do it. So can I just tell people to take off their masks at work now? Because these two are taking it on themselves as a risk. The rest of us all did what we could do and it's all available now. Those are going to be harder calls. What, what do you do in those situations? If you have someone into your home you can control whether they've been vaccinated or not. But once you go out to eat and you're at your workplace, it's a lot different. Well, in fact, this equilibrium we're talking about, we still have the most populous county in the state at substantial spread. The second most populous county in the state at just barely below substantial. So how are we going to ramp up vaccines? You talked about we're going to get emergency use authorization for 12 to 15 year olds. What does that mean about policy adjustments, about changing distribution strategies, about things that the state or the county health departments can do to make things easier and better. We'll tackle kids second, but let's tackle the adults right now. I think the key is there's three different groups. There's people in their 20s and 30s who are not vaccine hesitant, don't really have any questions, but need it to be easy, spontaneous, and convenient. For them, we got to get rid of the appointment system within the pharmacy so that they can be that kind of spontaneous person that doesn't plan on getting vaccinated but sees the opportunity and takes advantage of it. That's one category. Second category is what the county health departments are working hard on, which is these specialized events at churches, on weekends, uh, pop-up events, the stuff that Pima County's doing, shot in the dark kind of thing. Those are reaching into harder to reach communities that have had challenges with transportation, taking time off work, and those kinds of things. So that's that piece of it. There's a third group of people that are not anti-vaccine, but just questioning and kind of holding back. And for them, 
One thing would be, which we already talked about, is getting one of these vaccines approved rather than just authorized. But the other part of it is getting the vaccine into doctor's offices so that they can have a short conversation or longer conversation with their primary care nurse practitioner, doctor, and have the doctor at the end close the deal and say, whoa, okay, well, I'll have the nurse come in right now with the vaccine. Close the deal after the conversation. We need to get more doctors to actually order vaccines so they have it in their freezers. Last week, the state health department finally allowed independent practitioners to order, and only 65 doctors did it. So the state health department should do a root cause analysis to figure out why only 65 ordered. Is it because of the lack of communication? Is it because the ordering system is complicated? Is it because the reporting requirements are too difficult? Or is it that they feel like it'll sit in their freezer and they won't be able to vaccinate their patients because they're not making appointments? But until you do the root cause analysis, you can't find out why only 65 doctors out of the over 10,000 have ordered vaccine for their practices. So those are the things that we got to do. If we do some of those things, we can keep up some of our momentum. But if you look at, it sure looks like a bell curve and we're about at least one standard deviation on the right side of it. It's just, it's dropping by the week, day almost in terms of vaccines given per day. So we need some new strategies to just at least give us a chance to keep some of the momentum going. And like Josh said, we're going to get to herd immunity. The question is how quickly, and we can get there a lot faster if we can make some more inroads in these populations. Yeah. Okay. Question to all three of you. We'll just read off a huge list, a laundry list of reasons why this might be an issue. One of the ones, though, that had come up prior to this discussion in a previous roundtable was this idea that the tracking would just be so painful for an individual physician's office. So here's the question, starting with Kara. Would you trade off the reporting system for getting shots in arms? In other words, would you be willing to trade off complete and full reporting and accuracy for getting shots in arms so that we can get to herd immunity? I would say yes, but I also come from a perspective of individual treatment. As a physician, I do the individual and I'm not as skilled, nor is my daily experience in public health. You still have to track it. I mean, you can't get rid of everything, but from what I understand, it's just too arduous. So yeah, at some point you have to loosen up and go for it. To add on to that, like one of the requirements that they have in place right now is that if you do order vaccine, you have to do all this reporting of how much you have used and you can't order again until you've used 40% of what you have. So you're not just reporting the shot into ACES. That's the state's registration to track vaccines per person. There's all this extra stuff you have to do about your throughput, how efficient you've been. And those are the kinds of things that we could, I think, dismiss. What are you saying? Are you saying you would trade? Yeah, trade? I would trade in a New York minute. Right. Josh, what about you? <laughs> I don't necessarily need to know who got the shot, but I would like to know how many shots were given just so that we can do the public health part of it. Obviously, it's probably already sloppy. I'm guessing that if somebody decided that he or she wanted to get a third dose, and I happen to know some people who have, um, <clears throat> believe it or not, they can probably do it. I didn't ask how it was done. This is not ironclad, the tracking, but I would love to know, 
that how, roughly how many doses were put in arms. I think there, that part I want to know. There's an old thing I used to tell my staff all the time about. It's an old. It's a. I think it's the motto for the Association of Management. It's what gets measured gets done. And what you measure, you should only measure things that you're actually going to use. Right. It's you don't measure things because it's interesting to know. Which is important. I used to have a big staff of epidemiologists in my job at the health department. And they're iterative thinkers. They're like, they want to know because they're curious about something. Well, that's not a good reason to make clinicians collect and submit data. You, the reason you ask people to submit data is because you're going to do something with it. And if you're not going to do something with it, then don't ask people to turn it in. A lot of this information is helpful, for example... Is there a male-female bias in who gets vaccinated? We, we probably want to know that. Are there groups out there based on either ethnicity or other, other background issues that are underrepresented and therefore should be, you know, we should come up with more creative ways to, yeah. to get them vaccinated? So there is value to this stuff, but of course, we mostly want to get vaccines in arms. We're going to go around the table on this question. If you were the vaccine czar for the state of Arizona, what would you change about how we distribute, how we administer, and how we track vaccines in Arizona? This time, going to start with Will. So distribute, I would say, get rid of the appointment system in the pharmacies and anywhere else that you can. B, make it a lot easier for doctors to order vaccine and eliminate any kind of reporting that is a barrier to them participating in it. Although I want people to still enter their data into ACES so that, that that's the tracking system. So that there's, like we would do with everything, like even shingles and everything else goes in there. So those are the two things that I would do on distribution. I would keep prioritizing money going into pop-up events and funding things in some of our underserved communities. Make it a lot easier, make it more spontaneous, make it more convenient get more weekend type events into underserved areas, keep the employment clinics going, eliminate administrative red tape barriers that are slowing things down. Kara, I've been holding out for you for months now that one day you'll be able to draw a syringe in an emergency room and deliver a shot. So I expect during your answer that I will hear that. I will tell you I have requested that. And the barriers are enormous, as Will has already referred to. But basically, it's the red tape. I think that getting into communities that are not necessarily going to go to a primary care doctor on a regular basis and don't have health insurance and have perhaps language barriers. I think that's where the, the place is. I think that getting community support and not relying exclusively on the healthcare system that we've already built. Josh, you're next. You're the guy who gets to choose whatever you want to do. What is it going to be? Well, you know, I don't have a lot to add because I think both Will and Kara covered a lot of what I would do. I would say I personally believe that some of the people who vocally state that they either wouldn't do it or are hesitant to do it, if faced with an easy opportunity to get it, might actually get it. And so I would be looking at those communities that are rife with concern, and I would still bring a mobile van or something into that area and offer <laughs> anonymous 
vaccines for people who now that it's right in front of me and it's free and I could get it done might actually say, oh, what the heck, I'll do it. Maybe go to tattoo parlors. I don't know. <laughs> something places where people who might be vocally, ah, I'm not doing that, might actually do it. I know. I'm way too afraid to suggest something cool because I don't know anything cool. I heard on the PR that some places, marijuana place gives you a joint if you show your vaccination record. And then another place gives donuts. <laughs> right. There you go. Right. That is actually a nationwide program. Krispy Kreme nationwide is doing that. A donut for a shot. Nice. And Budweiser has a commercial that says they do that too. Wow. Did not know that. Don't know if it works. I haven't been to a bar. <laughs> okay. Shifting gears. American Rescue Plan. There is an estimate from the Joint Legislative Budget Committee at the state of Arizona, independent organization, that says that 12 plus billion dollars will flow into Arizona related to rescuing us and allowing us to recover from this pandemic. Where do you want to spend it, Will? Housing. If you want to do something about public health, affordable housing is a key. And we got a big problem with that. And there's a bunch of this kind of money that we can use both programmatically, but equally importantly, with policy changes. But that's going to take changes that would happen in the state legislature around the you know, Landlord-Tenant Act and that kind of thing. But I think housing is an underappreciated public health intervention. Do you think the CDC moratorium on evictions that might be canceled soon? plays into that? Yeah. By the way, there's a new housing director in Arizona, Tom Simplot. I don't know him that well. It's a unique opportunity for somebody coming into the Arizona Department of Housing with actual money coming from the federal government that doesn't need an appropriation from the state legislature, where that person would have the opportunity to use evidence-based practices and policy recommendations to help improve affordable housing access in our state. And I hope with my fingers crossed, that that does happen because I, I, I do think it's, it's a problem now that's going to become increasingly more challenging, as you said, Kara, that with the moratorium gone and the number of people that were unable to make those rent payments over the last several months uh, could end up causing a whole lot of evictions that create a big, giant housing problem. And One of the things about this Rescue Act is that Congress can make the money available, but getting the money out in a responsible way, building the checks and balances in the system to prevent fraud and abuse slows things down to the point where I'm afraid people are going to start getting evicted before the money actually gets out. And to be fair, Josh, I asked that question so broadly when, in fact, the act itself already has categories where the money can be spent and all that kind of good stuff. But just because it's fun to think about it, what would you do? So I I think unequal things now that need to be equalized that was brought to light in this whole process is internet access. I think we need to find ways to get communities that don't currently have opportunities to communicate on the internet, ways to do that. Because it's clear that that disenfranchises a lot of people, both in terms of getting access to healthcare, getting access to advice, and frankly, economic opportunity. I think all those things are needed. So I would definitely make sure that there are internet is everywhere. Kara, we just talked all about the challenges of the healthcare workforce. If you had that $12 billion to spend all by yourself, what would you do? Man, that's a hard one. Certainly putting a lot of money into supporting people who wouldn't go into healthcare. 
but also into addressing some of the reasons for healthcare burnout, not just from the pandemic, but in general. Why are healthcare workers burnout? How can we help them? How can we change the healthcare structure for patients and for healthcare workers? Will, we were thinking we might hear something even during this recording. Tell us about it. We expect to see that the FDA authorizes use of the vaccine in a new group of kids, 12 to 15 years old. That's If it doesn't happen today, it's going to happen tomorrow. We know that because the CDC's Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices is meeting Wednesday, first thing in the morning, to recommend, to decide whether to recommend its use. So FDA does the authorization to use CDC makes the recommendation to use. I expect that to happen probably Thursday or Friday. And then there's a whole bunch of moms, I hope, that'll be interested in getting their middle schoolers and up vaccinated. And to me, the key is getting this vaccine into pediatric offices um, because that's the best place for those kids to get the vaccine. Because number one, a lot of adolescents miss annual appointments and stuff because of their busy schedules and things. And they need to do some screening and, you know, that primary care kind of stuff and get those kids into those offices. So we need to make it a lot easier for pediatricians to order the Pfizer vaccine. And it's only going to be Pfizer that's authorized in this initial swoop. And to make that happen, we need to make two changes. Number one, we got to auto-enroll all of the vaccines for children providers, the VFC providers, into the COVID program so that they can administer and get the COVID vaccine into their practices without going through a special portal the way it is right now. So bring in automatically all your VFC providers. And then number two got to break down those Pfizer boxes into smaller orders because the Pfizer box depends on how many vials you get out of a vial. You can get five or sometimes you can get six. But let's say you could get six out of the box, out of the vial. A box, they call it a pizza box, has 1,170 shots or roughly that in it. Wow. You can keep it for two weeks in a regular freezer. You can't keep it for more than two weeks in a regular freezer, you're supposed to have an ultra-low freezer to keep it more than two weeks. So pediatric offices are probably not going to be able to move 1,100 right. vaccines yeah, in two weeks. So yeah. we got to break it down so that they can order, instead of ordering 1,100 shots, they can order 300 or something like that. So we got to have the state and county break down the ordering so that the Pfizer can come in less than one pizza box. So let me tie that up in a bow. There's two things we got to do. Get the pediatricians enrolled and don't make them th jump through a bunch of hoops. If they're VFC docs, just let them in, make the ordering easy, and don't make them order 1,100 vaccines. If we do those things, then parents will be able to bring their middle schoolers and up into the regular pediatric office where they can get a regular developmental screen and other checkup kinds of stuff and get their shot instead of sending them to a stadium site, which I see parents more inclined to bring their middle schoolers in for a vaccine that's under emergency use authorization to the doctor's office and having that be successful than for them to spontaneously show up at a stadium. Couldn't you just get nurses to the cafeterias? And when oh. I was a kid, we used to get either the polio vaccine that way or smallpox that way. They were just like, yeah, just we got measles in the in line the... and walk through in the cafeteria. And then boom, yeah. you got your arm. I got measles that way. And it looked yeah. like a power drill. 
<laughs> the way <laughs> I remember it. Scary that device. Yeah. Yeah. I that. But school's out. And that's the thing. They're oh right. So now we yeah. have a chance. It's actually good timing because we got a chance. All summer long, parents have a chance to get yeah. their kids into the pediatrician to get that shot before school starts. Yeah, yeah. But there's administrative and logistical barriers that need to be resolved in order to make that happen. So that's where I'm focusing my advocacy this week. Nice. Are pharmacies an option for 12 to 15 year olds? Should be. Yeah, but then you have the more of the consent thing, right? Because in a pediatric office, all the forms and stuff Mm. are already done. So there's no extra like hurdle on prove you're his parent kind of thing. That's all done. Once you start bringing them to a stadium or a pharmacy, then you've got like a consent form that becomes another part of the system. So it's just, I think they belong in their medical home. We just need to make it so that the pediatricians can do it easy and simply and have it be just like the meningitis shot when they give that, which is around the same age. You guys have been faithful members of this roundtable podcast, and we have been so grateful to you for that. Would you consider for the next episode or a future episode joining the newly formed Vitalist Spark COVID-19 Roundtable Podcast Book Club. Can it be a magazine club? <laughs> Books are kind of long. <laughs> Michael Lewis, the guy who wrote Liar's Poker, Moneyball, The Blind Side, The Big Short, yeah. has just released the book called The Premonition. And it is all about this pandemic and how it came to be and how the United States even came to have a pandemic plan. Who's in? I'm in. Oh, I'd read I, it. I might throw the book against the wall. I read the review and... I already felt my uh, blood starting to boil, but I think I, <laughs> I think it's good. I just don't want to make a promise I can't keep. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. All right. Well, don't be surprised if it comes up in the next roundtable. Thank you, Kara. Thank you, Josh. And thank you, Will. As Will expected, the Pfizer vaccine was FDA authorized for kids ages 12 to 15 just after we recorded this episode. By May 12th, We expect the CDC to sign off as well, which means that as soon as May 13th or 14th, the first shots could be administered to a younger group. It's another crucial step on our journey toward ending the pandemic, one that has us yearning for a more typical fall in middle schools and high schools throughout Arizona. There's still much to do to get there, but as all of our guests noted at the beginning of our roundtable today, there are more reasons than ever to be optimistic. Now, speaking of things to do, we may, fingers crossed, have our first COVID-19 Roundtable Book Club meeting in a number of weeks, and you are invited. Get your hands on Michael Lewis's book, The Premonition. In the author's typical style that made two of his previous books into hit movies, this one is a real-life, character-driven story of public health, promising pandemic planning that began in 2005, and disjointed pandemic response in 2020. Check it out for yourself and get ready to hear what our roundtable experts have to say in response to Lewis's storytelling in an upcoming roundtable episode. Of course, if book club isn't your thing, we understand. Just know that you'll always have our back catalog of podcast episodes focused on the opioid crisis, affordable housing, food systems, Arizona tribes, schools, streets and open spaces, and more. There is a lot to listen to featuring guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org slash podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for now. The insights, reflections, and takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in business settings, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please share this independent episode far and wide. 
subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts, or you can also give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments, they are all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.